This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Tish Harrison Warren is a writer and a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. Her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, was Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year, and she just released Prayer in the Night for those who work or watch or weep a few weeks ago. What has that that initial response been as, as you've seen the book kind of go out? Yeah, I mean, it's always fun, right? I mean, you've experienced this as an author. It's fun to see people respond to your work and resonate with your work and I mean, especially when people really like your work. It, I mean, writing is not a solitary task. The whole time I was sharing these, what I was writing with my editor and with friends and getting feedback and talking to people about it. But there is a lot of time that you spend in a room by yourself. And then the analogy I've used like elsewhere and others is it feels like a message in the bottle. Like you send it out to sea. You don't know if anyone will find it, if it'll just sink to the bottom of the sea. Mm-hmm. So it always feels like this miracle when people find it and then then you get a bottle back, like people write back and talk about how it resonated with them. And with both my books, what I love is people will talk about the book and how much it meant to them and give specific sentences, et cetera. You know, like, so I loved it when you said this, but then they inevitably start talking about their own lives. Like my books when they resonate with readers, what readers start talking about is their own lives, how this looks in their own life, which is different, right? Than Mm -hmm. often in my own life or what I say. So it feels like there's some kind of living exchange happening there. We're not talking about the words on the page. We're talking about the words on the page resonating through this person's life. So it's always super gratifying. And yeah, this book in particular has been interesting because a lot of people cry and a lot a lot of people have had very emotional responses to the book there's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb he seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him and everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around now first he sings and then he goes and what it means, it's hard to know. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's episode, Tish Harrison Warren and I have kind of a deep dive into the subject of grief, its place in our culture, and the role it plays in the Christian life. It's a great conversation, especially in the light of the past year. So stay with us. it's not surprising people are crying because people, you know, you've written a book about 
lament and suffering that just happened to come out a year into a pandemic. A hard, a hard year. Yeah. I mean, it's un, it's just unbelievable the the timing, and it's unbelievable the the amount of suffering. And you know, if there if there weren't a pandemic, it'd be a time where people are feeling anxious and stressed and traumatized because of the mm-hmm. political situation we're in. And one of the reasons I think there's an urgency for books like this is people just don't know how to process grief. They're not prepared for it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time in the book on that. I've come to think that grief is a part of Christian practice, but it's something that we are like really not well equipped for um at least I'm speaking for like most folks in the West and myself, I'll speak for myself here, that we are taught to minimize our grief, especially if our suffering is ordinary. It's not, we don't have profound or catastrophic suffering or, I mean, there is a reality of that I am privileged, that my life is rung round with all kinds of blessings and safety and privilege, like from education, from wealth, from being a white American. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. And that's good to name. We have to name that. But the downside of that is that we can miss that there is a common humanity of grief, of loss that we all experience because we live in a world where people die Mm. and where everyone we love will die, where we will die. And then before for that, that we'll, we'll suffer a lot of loss, we'll suffer a lot of pain, even people with relatively, quote unquote, good lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think I tell a story in my book about like the mantra in my house growing up was just like, could be worse, right? And so as long as sort of anyone had it worse, I felt like I shouldn't grieve or I shouldn't yeah, I shouldn't grieve. It felt like complaining. Hmm. But the reality is, is that I've come to see grief as just an absolutely unavoidable reality in a world that has fallen. Origen, the early church father, called this world a world of tears after the fall. That after the fall, the world became a world of tears. And I think that's just, to some extent, a reality. I mean, of course there's comfort. Of course there's beauty. And that's always true as well. But there is always grief. So getting kind of, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but unsurprised by grief in our life Hmm. and letting ourselves actually notice it and feel it and grieve it and meet God in it is part of what it means, I think, to mature as a Christian, but also it's part of how we keep walking in in the way of Jesus in the midst of questions and struggle and pain is that we have to actually enter in and honestly name the grief that we have. There's such an emotional health factor in thinking about these things as I've processed this stuff, because I think I grew up in probably in similar environments particularly in the churches that I grew up in, where there was this sense that it wasn't a prosperity gospel necessarily, but there was kind of an emotional prosperity that was expected Mm. of Christians. Yes, that's such a good word. Yes. And so, you know, you're a Christian, you're going to be, you're going to be happier than the people around you. You don't have an excuse for, for whatever. And, and so you reach a place in your life where, I mean, I remember I was 21 years old and I had a, a back injury that laid me out for, for six months. 
I could barely walk, barely get around. And in no way was I prepared for the cost of that. And I mean, again, like even now telling that story, there's a part of me that kind of wants to lurch up and say, I mean, it could have been worse. Like people have been through worse things, you know, in their twenties, but part of what was unfortunate in some ways it shaped ministry for me going forward was I didn't have a vocabulary for that experience, even though I'd, I'd been in the church my whole life. And would you look at that and see that as reflective more broadly of, of just sort of Western culture? Yeah, I do think it's reflected more broadly in Western culture, but I also think the church as a alternative community needs to be different. We need to witness to a different way. And we talk a lot about discipleship, right? We talk about spiritual discipleship. We talk about discipling our minds. We talk about spiritual formation. But then when we use, when we talk about emotions, we either don't talk about them very often. We talk about them in sort of shallow ways, like you're saying, kind of chin up, Jesus is in charge, you know, or we resort to kind of a therapeutic secular model, like of uh, self-help or um, emotional health, which I don't have, I have no problem with that term. But I think what I'm saying is that we need emotional discipleship, that just like our Hmm. brain needs to be formed by Jesus and our wills, that our emotions can be discipled and need to be discipled. And you see this all the time, right? That Christian leaders who are godly, who are knowledgeable, who are thoughtful, who are just, just, are just emotional infants, right? Just some of the explosions that we've had in the church over the last decade hmm. have been with folks that, that just don't know how to handle grief, don't know how to handle anger. Mm-hmm. So they go to rage or they go to addiction or they go to, um, or they go to uh, being jerks online. And so the fact is scripture is just replete. It's just full of, and church history is full of ways to disciple our emotions, that our, our emotions would be formed by the story of Jesus and not just the story of Jesus, but the story of, you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the whole story of redemption. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of our task as a church, so it is partly like Western culture, but I think part of our task as a church is to be people who, because of the grace of God, we experience life more abundantly. But that doesn't just mean abundantly more happy. I think mm-hmm. that we look at grief and name grief and are honest about that in a way that others may not be able to. I, I think we need the church to teach us through practice how to hold just absolute truth of the fall of darkness in the world of brokenness, and then the absolute truth of redemption and that Jesus is making all things new. You know, if we if we only hold the bad news, then it becomes, of course, despair. But if we only hold Jesus and we're not and we're not totally honest about how broken things are, it becomes saccharine and shallow and it feels false. And so one of the things I bring up in the book, part of the reason I wrote this book is because there's data in a survey by Barna that when you look at younger folks, millennials and Gen Z, more and more increasing amount numbers of them are leaving the faith because they are struggling with what theologians call theodicy, which the way they articulate it in the survey is they, they can't, 
believe, they, they don't buy that a good God could allow suffering in the world. So folks are, are bailing, right? Because um, there's not an answer to that. And I think part of that is because the church isn't honest enough about the reality of suffering in the world. And the fact is that Christians have, this is not the first generation to ask these questions. This is not the first generation to struggle with this. But we need to talk about it and we need to be honest about it. And the lack of emotional discipleship in the church has left us unprepared to truly face that reality. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. This episode is brought to you in part by Asbury Theological Seminary, a multi-denominational evangelical seminary rooted in the Wesleyan tradition. Serving nearly 100 different denominations, Asbury Seminary prepares theologically educated, sanctified, spirit-filled men and women to evangelize and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. Asbury Seminary is a spiritually vibrant, academically rigorous community with a residential campus in central Kentucky, extension sites in Orlando, Tampa, Memphis, Tulsa, and Colorado Springs, and fully online programs. With over 1,800 students from 50 countries, Asbury Seminary is committed to embracing a church that encompasses all people, languages, and ethnicities. Learn more at asbury.to slash get started. It's so interesting you mentioned, you know, the the kind of catastrophic failures of leadership with regard to this stuff. Something along those lines happened in our church and, you know, a few years back. And, um, you know, I think there was some evidence of that there. But, you know, Darren Patrick was a, a really good friend of mine. And Darren had a moral failure in, I think it was 2016, and then kind of went on this road of recovery. And, as he was working through his recovery journey, that was the drumbeat for him over and over again, was just rec- recognizing that he had this tremendous grief, particularly the last mm. few years of his ministry, because of uh, father wounds and of just this unreconciled number of unreconciled experiences he'd had with his dad. And then his dad passed away about a year before he um, had to step down from ministry. You know, ultimately, I mean, Darren took his life in May, and it never, it never kind of healed for him. But I think he was kind of quick to to look at other guys and just be able to look at the circumstances and say, I mean, it's just the father wound thing is so powerful, and the impulse, and I think what 
you know, back to some of this talk about like where the church needs to to grow, the impulse is that, well, the church is going to fix this. You know, God is your father now. Everything's better. What I can look at as somebody who was you know, right in the middle of the that young reformed movement is that across the spectrum, there was there was this sense of like, okay, the pastor needs to become the spiritual father and shepherd the church. But there wasn't a pervasive culture of, you know, if you came from a place where there was experiences of deep brokenness with your family, which wasn't necessarily my story, but was definitely definitely that of some of the leaders around me. Um, there wasn't a vo- vocabulary for, there weren't practices for giving life, giving expression to that grief. You know, Darren looked at that and said that was certainly what was toxic for him. And he believed that was, you know, sort of the poison that was in the common well, that crew of guys who all kind of had to step down together in a period of three or four years. And it just makes you wonder, you know, how do you transform a culture that's so alien to grief and so addicted to triumphalism? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I have so much to say in response to what you just said. (laughs) Might have to write another book. Um, I think I have three things. I didn't write them down. I don't even have a pen where I am, but uh, (laughs) if I can remember the three things, could I respond to what you said? Yeah, please, please. So one is I, I talk in the book about Walker Percy talked about how Christianity in the South, in the American South, which is the context he was writing from, it's a syncretistic religion of Christianity and Stoicism. In case people aren't familiar with Stoicism, it's a really, really old, that ancient philosophical system, essentially ridding yourself of desire and bearing the pain of life impassively. And I would say that's true of the American South, for sure. But I think that it's also true of, of probably more broadly, just American Christianity. And because of that, I mean, we have particularly, like, I can, I can hear, I can hear certain listeners, I don't know who your listeners are, but I could hear people as they're listening to this podcast, especially if they're men, being like, Ugh, like they just want us to whine about our feelings all the time, like the <laughs> feminization of the church and the, right? Like um, mm-hmm. there's a resistance to that. But I, I'll say this is that I think that we have an ideal Christian emotional health in our mind. And it's probably, for, especially if you're a younger generation, probably honest, vulnerable, because we like that. But there is still a sense of um, being a little impenetrable or full of joy or easygoing or laid back or fun, or, or maybe it is a little more just like John Wayne, just um, <laughs> being kind of together and stoic. And But when you look at scripture, oh my goodness, like these, like look at David in the Psalms. That guy makes the most emotional Twitter person look kind of like serene, <laughs> right? Like he's right. all over the place. He's darkness is my only friend. He's how long, oh Lord. Like the psalmist is also like full of joy, but then full of despair, sometimes in the same psalm. I mean, there's just this like incredible range of emotion. When we look at the person of Jesus, he's weeping over Jerusalem. He's crying over his friend. He's weeping on the cross. You see Jesus as this like incredibly emotionally alive human being. Mm-hmm. He feels it all, right? He feels deep compassion for people. He feels joy, but he feels like 
deep grief and he doesn't hold it in. Like the scripture, actually, when the word that's used when he's weeping over his friend Lazarus is like he's grunting like a horse. Like it's the the Greek word is this like deep guttural, like not mm. sort of like a few tears are coming from his eyes. It's a sound that's like animalistic kind of grief, like a, a almost a primordial howl. And so like that that's our savior, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was an emotionally alive person. He was not a stoic. So right. I think there's there's something to be recovered there and just sort of what our how our imagination is formed about what it would look like to be alive in Christ, to have abundant life. What does it look like emotionally to have abundant life? Mm-hmm. You know, does it look like being happy all the time? Does it look like being like cool all the time? Or does it look like Jesus? The second thing I would say is, uh, so I didn't know you were from like the young restless reformed crowd. Mm -hmm. I'm also from kind of the outskirts of that. I mean, I don't know, like I was never, I don't know. I never got like a, the badge, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I was on staff at a a PCA church, two different PCA churches and was, I was in the PCA for a long time, was young and had, was cool. I, you know, you were restless. You were reformed. I was restless. I had pink hair. (laughs) Um, my husband had Buddy Holly glasses and we were at a urban PCA church. So we could be sort of, we could like have some cred in that circle. And one of the things I've talked about a lot is there was this time where we were at an incredible church, which I still really deeply love and respect, you know, the people at this church, but it's, it's a church in, by Harvard. It's between Harvard and MIT. And it was really, really heady doctrinally. I mean, every week was a just 45-minute, doctrinally intense, scripturally intense sermon. It was good. And every elder there had a PhD, literally every single one. Mm. And it was amazing to, I mean, we would say, okay, we want to do something. We want to do a Sunday school class. My husband was kind of over adult education there and say like, we want to do a Sunday school class about, um, about Islam about sort of a Christian's response to Islam. This was not that long after 9-11. So, you know, we could say like, oh, well, we have the world-renowned scholar on this in our congregation. Mm -hmm. So let's have him do it, right? Like, because we were, because so many Harvard students and Harvard professors were there. And and then we were also in seminary. So we were married to each other. We were studying Greek. We were learning. We were just like, it was like this, the headiest. We were just drinking in good theology, which is great. But we were fighting like cats and dogs. Like our marriage was young and we were stupid and we were completely unequipped because we had such a view of, you know, if we kind of get these ideas in our head, mm-hmm. then they'll result in magically to sanctification. But there was no concept of spiritual formation really in that. And there was no concept of emotional discipleship. So formation has become important to me in part because I've kind of seen, and I don't denigrate doctrine at all. In fact, I talk in the book about the importance of doctrine in the midst of grief and pain, but I've seen how sometimes in those circles, we can think that Christianity is mostly about sort of believing the right things or Mm -hmm. understanding the right things having like the keen insight on faith and culture. But really, like 
we're holistic people and we have to be formed as holistic people. And the last thing I just say is that I talked in the book a lot about addiction and how I quote this Chicago Tribune article that it says we're a nation of addicts. And it just talked about how addiction is so pervasive in America. Of course, alcohol and drugs, but also pornography and work and food. And he just lists on and on the amount of addictions that Americans have. And part of the argument that I make and that others have made is that it's because we as a culture don't know how to face grief. We don't know Mm -hmm. how to face suffering. We go to numbing and we go to, and we end up in, in I mean, I've walked with a lot of people now through addiction and through pornography addiction in particular. And so much of it goes back to grief. Like Mm -hmm. you were saying, so much of it is exactly what your friend was saying of just response to not wanting to feel the things that demand to be felt. Mm -hmm. And I make the point in the book that grief is not, it's like this ghost that will not be laid to rest until you until you actually face it. And so, I mean, honestly, I think that's why I think it's a spiritual practice. If we don't enter into it with our community in the church and encounter God through it, that's what I mean with deal with it. I don't mean stop feeling it. I mean, I mean, encounter God in our grief and receive the comfort that only God can give. If we don't receive comfort from the comforter, then we always will go to a false comfort. And it will always come out in different ways. So I think our culture has a problem with outrage. This has like been widely talked about. This is no surprise. We have a, a culture of outrage and that this has, you know, created all kinds of problems and polarization politically. And we like to tear each other down on the internet. And I think rage is at the end of the day, an expression of grief. And so, I, I mean, I don't want to be one of those people that's like, you know, there's a demon behind every corner, except I'm just saying grief. It's like everything is grief. I think there's so much in what you observe in that that is real and true. And I think that when the church doesn't teach us how to respond to the grief in our life, to the fall is what we're talking about here, to sin and brokenness that we are wounded by. If we're not taught that, if we're not discipled in that, then it's inevitably going to come out in all kinds of other ways. And that could look like avoiding God. That could look like addiction. That could look like outrage. It could look like a thousand different things. It's not just going to go away. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have been made to be people who feel things. So this part of what it means to be a creature. It's part of what it means to be a human being. And it's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. What you said there makes me think of a great David Foster Wallace quote when he said, um, you know, the truth will set you free, but not until it's finished with you. Mm, that's a great quote. It really is. And it, it, I think it makes so much sense in this context because part of what we're trying to do with the church, and this goes back to something Tim Keller says all the time, is like you have to give people the bad news before the good news. And if people aren't willing to accept the bad news, they'll never really comprehend the good news. You know, most of the time when people use that kind of framework for talking about the gospel, they're they're talking about sin. But it's also true of suffering, that if we don't, at some level, enable our, our churches, enable people, or as Christians, as individuals, 
come to terms with our own suffering and with the brokenness of the world, we'll never really comprehend what the hope of God's new making work is really going to be like. Yeah, that's right. If we minimize the fall, if we minimize the power of death, then we inevitably minimize resurrection mm-hmm. and we minimize the renewal of all things. And of course, we don't consciously do this, right? But we say, you know, let's focus on resurrection. So we just don't talk about the fall or we don't talk about the bad news or we don't talk about the power of death in our own lives, but it ends up inevitably minimizing it. And I'll say, I mean, this is kind of going back to the previous question, but I think it it links into this too, is that our lack of control as humans and the power of death has been unavoidable in 2020 and 2021 in a way that we haven't seen, I think, in my lifetime. I was telling someone it's, we're coming up on Ash Wednesday, not far, it's I think in a couple weeks. And I feel like every other Ash Wednesday, you know, as an Anglican priest, we're like, you're going to die. Remember that you're going to die. You know, and everyone's just like <laughs> out there and having fun, and not, not thinking about mortality. Right. And I'm like, this year, everyone knows that. I mean, I feel like the daily death counts remind us of that. Like mm-hmm. the, we know we're, the mortality is so, and just our lack of control and that things can be different a year from now than we ever thought they would be. Like, I think that we've all lived that together over the last year in ways. And so we're more aware of that. So in ways this year is different, I think, is an offering that there's hope that death isn't the end, that you're not in control, but that doesn't mean that there is no meaning or that life is sort of spiraling chaotically that we do have one that guards us, that guards the city. You know, there's a psalm, we go to sleep at night, we awake again because it's the Lord that guards the city. The idea that there's someone guarding, there's someone watching, that's the good news, right? But I think often we avoid the bad news. We avoid mortality. It's just sort of splashed in our face in a new way in 2020, And obviously there's like that split along political lines and there's people that are still sort of denying that. But I, I really think that a lot of the outrage that we've seen this year, that a lot of the conspiracy theory cropping up in ways we haven't seen before in the last few years is a absolute response to people losing a sense of normalcy and control and community. It's the combination of isolation and this loss of the false sense of control that people have without any kind of truth to replace that. Mm -hmm. And so they go searching, they come up with all kinds of untruth and all kinds of rage. And, but I, I think you can't separate the sort of toxicity in our culture right now from the absolute grief, again, go back to grief, that COVID has caused in people's lives through loss of life, but also through disruption of routine, through isolation. A lot of people have lost work. A lot of people have lost their their livelihood. And a lot of people have lost like routine. Like, like it's been really hard for my kids and watching them struggle yeah. through this and suffer through this has been hard. So I think that there's this sort of collective grief, collective recognition of vulnerability, but there's no, like the church has not adequately responded with the good news to that. And so I'm not sure the American church was equipped to respond to good news with that. And so 
in the midst of that, people have found all kinds of false comfort in everything from political outrage to QAnon and addiction. And all, I mean, someone told me Mississippi reported there was more alcohol consumed in 2020 in Mississippi than ever in the history, in recorded history. Hmm. So it's this deep collective grief and, and we don't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. So everyone's just freaking out, losing their minds. Yeah, there was a big New York Times story the other day about teen suicide in Nevada, or maybe it was even just the Las Vegas school systems that it's just through the roof this year. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a prediction that, you know, the data is still really to be assembled, but that, you know, what we're going to see in terms of deaths of despair in 2020 is is just going to be jaw-dropping. So Yeah. Gosh, this is a heavy, yeah. a heavy podcast. <laughs> sorry. Man. It's my book release day. I'm having I'm a cake tonight. I am. I'm eating I'm a cake. I'm going from this podcast to eat a cake. <laughs> I'll, I'll get on DoorDash and send you some donuts or something. I'm going to um, be crying into my cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of on that note, I mean, I genuinely was going to ask this question because I haven't gotten to this part of the book, actually. Where does the gospel take us? Where can the church take us? What is the opportunity for us moving forward? Well, so that's not, thankfully in my book, I, I don't think that's in just one chapter. So that the book does sort of get darker and harder. <laughs> and then at the end, we talk about joy. I mean, the culmination, the final chapter is the love of God. Hmm. And that is much brighter. So... <laughs> read till the end, like <laughs> wait for it. Don't, don't stop in the middle. I mean, seriously, if you're going to stop in the middle, at least go and read the last chapter or two. I think that it really intentionally, honestly, like, I don't know how much to talk about the writing process, but I so like wove in, I embroidered in these moments of levity, of humor. It's really important to me to try to write well and beautifully and use beautiful images. But I also think there's joy in that. There's a lightness, I hope, that makes the book not just heavy. But I also just like, I do tell funny stories about my kids in the book. And I (laughs) do, I tell a funny story about my dad. And so part of that is because I hope the book has some joy in it as well. I mean, I think that's reality. And, And describing kind of the beauty of the world. I mean, I... Like this book certainly takes us, a, I hope, a pretty hard like right hook to the prosperity gospel. I just think it's it's deadly the way that that has kind of infected all of our theology. That said, I do think there's so I'm a person who's just in love with the world. I, I think there's like I, I don't <laughs> I I'm well aware in scripture that Paul uses that to describe someone negatively. I don't I don't necessarily mean the world like hopefully not the lies of the world, but I mean the literal like creation, the, uh, the beauty of the world, and so that is I hope throughout the book. But ultimately, what the church has to say. Here's what I'm saying. So I hope that it's not just like darkness and then we talk about the love of God at the end. I kind of return to Jesus throughout the book, but I think that the hope that the world has to offer is a few things. Number one, I I think that saying to people, the grief you're experiencing is real because things are not the way they are supposed to be is a deeply comforting idea. Because if we don't have a concept of the fall, if we don't have the story of the fall and a doctrine of sin, then 
grief doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like things just are the way they are. And we need to just sort of make the best of it and make ourselves as comfortable as possible. So to say like, no, like things are not the way they are supposed to be. We are not supposed to be living in a world that where we have to deal with global pandemics and isolation, the despair that these teenagers are feeling is because there's an honesty that the world is broken. Hmm. And I think that we need to speak that. I think that's actually, it's not good news, but I think deep down we know that things are broken and not right. And so for someone to say, yeah, you're, you're not crazy. Like that's right. That's true. And your longing for things to be better is from God hmm. because you're made for a more enduring kingdom. You're made for wholeness. You're not just made for consumption. You're not just made to try to make your life comfortable. Like you're made for wholeness and holiness and completeness and joy even. And I, I've said this, uh, this is how I've explained it elsewhere. Like the fall is not good news. Just like you know, when my friend Katie got cancer, it wasn't good news. But it was good that her doctor told her she had cancer. Like it was good that being that that was reality, it was good to name that reality because that was like, the path to healing. So I think that's, I think our story is helpful there, but that ultimately, obviously that would be, if, if that's where it stopped, that would be not a lot of good news. Um, but that we have a savior. I mean, I constantly go back, like the only hope, the only evidence that light outlives darkness, the only actual evidence that love wins, that the powerful don't just keep prospering and the weaker get more and more trod upon is the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And the only real hope we have is that Jesus will come and make all things right. And the only evidence that that's not just wishful thinking is, is history, the incar like incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I talk in the book about how it can be easy to sort of play like a cosmic kind of poker game where we just sort of try to Look at all the good in the world and all the bad in the world and weigh it. You know, is there more good? Is there more bad? Is there more good in our life or bad in our life? Is there more good in our in the world or bad in the world? And it's just, it's um, you can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. There's just no way. For every good and beautiful thing that I bring up, you could bring up something tragic and terrible. And those are both true things about the world. So the thing that determines the goodness of God or the trustworthiness of God can't be like how good our lives are, how happy the Christian life is. It's to look at the person of Jesus. And so the, the whole kind of reoccurring question in my book is if you can't trust God to keep bad things from happening to you or to those who you love, how do you trust God at all? And one of the amazing things kind of through writing, I just realized over and over is that God didn't solve human vulnerability. He didn't take it away. He just enters into it. Mm -hmm. He enters into it in the person of Christ, and he continues to enter into it. So God doesn't stop bad things from happening to God. And so any place mm -hmm. of darkness that we go to, like God beat us there. Like we, we meet God in suffering because he was there first. So your book is built around a Compline prayer. Uh, which is part of the Liturgy of the Hours. I wonder if maybe that's where we should end things today. It's keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. 
Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary. Bless the dying. Soothe the suffering. Pity the afflicted. Shield the joyous. And all for your love's sake. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Tish. Yeah, thank you. First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps other people find the show. You can also send us feedback at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Cultivated is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by me. It was edited by Mark Owens. And our theme song is Eden Was a Garden by Roman Campbell. We'll see you soon. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.